0: Tell me what you see.
1: I see a loose crowd of people. An elderly couple sits at a table, reading the paper. A few friends catch up next to them, laughing about old memories. Teenagers hang out on the edge, the scrape of their skateboards cutting the air. A young family walks by, their daughter pointing at a group of pigeons. Workers hustle to get to their jobs. Where am I? An open and thriving park, in the space between buildings.
2: If we can start talking about something um, in an advocacy context, then hopefully someone else also talks about it, and then someone else also talks about it, and that's how you get culture change.
0: Welcome to What Builds Us, a podcast that uncovers the ways our built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and our day-to-day lives. I'm Chantel.
1: And I'm Brian. So the last two weeks, we've talked about interior public spaces. We have fun uh, running around and talking about places we've been. Uh, and this week, we're, we're talking about kind of similar dynamics that are at play, but now outside in the spaces in between buildings.
0: So this looks different in a lot of different types of communities. So it's pretty obvious in a city what these spaces between buildings look like because we have a lot of sidewalks. We have a lot of parklets, which are the spaces that we talked about before being like right outside of a restaurant. We have a lot of parks that have installations and playgrounds in it that you can hop on and you meet people in front of
1: yeah and plazas and yeah bus s- stops and all that good stuff
0: yeah and every once in a while in front of stores in boston at least i know there's like always different kind of installations going up that people are always interacting with and and those spaces become very prominent and unique to everybody who exists in a city but they're very different to people who live outside of a city and like what those plazas look like. They're a lot different. What your sidewalks look like. And so this week, we're gonna uncover a lot of different ways that people come together and interact in those moments that are between these buildings and between different experiences that we have in the spaces around us.
1: So to dive further into this topic, we brought someone in who's written a lot about it and done a lot of work in this space. Katrina Johnston Zimmerman. She's an urban anthropologist currently based out of Philadelphia.
0: So, an urban anthropologist is a pretty intimidating title, but it's a, basically... It's a big word. It's a lot of big words <laughs> kind of that you don't often hear together, right? So, an anthropologist, that's what she originally studied, um, she looked in and researched, obviously, Homo sapiens sapiens, us, where we came from and why we do what we do in society and spaces. And then, as an urbanist, she likes to think of ways that our unique man-made habitats, our cities, can... Be made better for us mentally and physically combining you know knowing what cities are like and knowing what we're like
1: yeah it's a great combo
0: great combo <laughs> so can you just introduce yourself for us uh my name is
2: katrina johnston zimmerman i am an urban anthropologist um and essentially a professional people watcher <laughs> i'm also the project manager at the lindy institute for urban innovation at drexel university Um, I am an adjunct professor, lecturer, uh, and advocate for livable cities for everyone through the lens of anthropology.
1: So to kind of pick up our conversation from episode four, when we talked about parking day, you, you thought about that event a lot in, in the terms of right of way and the right to the city and especially public space in the city. Could you just talk about that idea some more?
2: A hundred percent. Oh my God! Yes, I can talk about that. Um, so <laughs> I can talk about so many things, you guys. It's so bad. Um, so <laughs> the yeah, I mean, the thing about the right of way, I really, I honestly don't love the term to start with. I don't love using those kinds of technical terms. I'm also not a planner. Um, I'm an urban anthropologist, which means what I've done is sort of study a lot of little things about, you know the ways that different people shape cities, but don't necessarily have the technical know-how or power or certificate or license or whatever to do some of those things myself. So okay. I can consult on a lot of things and observe and understand things, but I'm not a planner, so I'm not having to deal with those things every day. So in some ways, I'm sort of privileged to kind of have that step back and see the larger picture. Um, but so I use the term in the sense that it It's a term that can communicate with a certain group of people. So if you're working for those people and doing a project on that, I can talk about it in their way. Um, But really what it means is it's just essentially the space that people have between buildings that isn't dealing with, you know, I guess technically speaking the through traffic uh, that is also designated in that space. But it also depends on who you talk to because the right of way can also mean the legality of the situation. Like in Portland, There was total right of way, whereby if you were a person and you were crossing the street, you had the right to go despite the fact that there was no crosswalk there, right? No matter where you were stepping off the street, you had that right of way in the street itself. And so it kind of depends on where you are, depends on the laws, um, and it depends on the person you talk to, what kind of field they're in. So. But basically, I mean, my specialty is public space. And if you look at that in a more purest way, that is that really is the the public space itself anywhere in the street. I mean, that includes where the cars are going through, of course, as well, because, you know, I have a right to that space as much as someone who's in a car, for instance. Right. Or the sidewalk or a park or a plaza or whatever have you, even a semi-public space like. You know, an atrium of a building or a library or what have you is considered a type of a public space when we're talking about an urban environment.
0: Yeah. It's funny because part of the Boston stereotype is walking out into the middle of the street across, no matter what. That's like. Yeah, whether
1: that's the law or not. Yeah.
0: Um, But that's a really good way when you mention that idea of the right of way, like. How everyone interprets that different, and so many people don't think that they're allowed to occupy different kinds of space,
2: well, and I would also flip that to say a lot of people don't think that other people are allowed to occupy a type of space, yeah, yeah, which is where it really gets tricky because you know it's it's when you're talking about some sort of right, whatever that is, yeah, you know, that has to be a right for everyone. And once again, you know, I don't drive, I don't have a license, I've never had a license. You know, the fact that I would be essentially like disenfranchised towards an ownership of a piece of a public space that can make up a, you know, like 20% of a city or more, right? that is essentially an injustice in my ability to use that space like other people. And the problem is, is that the people who have ownership over those spaces have a tendency to think of them like they have a right to own them and that other people don't, you know, and the same could be said about different kinds of people in public spaces, for instance, right? And there are subtle ways of doing it. Um, Sometimes the city is, you know, complicit in the way that they're doing it. Maybe they're not putting in Bike lanes are not speaking up, you know, strongly enough for people um, who are riding bikes or skating or whatever else you might be doing, uh, and that's where it gets into not just the right of way, but the right to the city. And that's what really like the entire conversation comes down to. It's not just public space, it's my right as a human being inside an urban environment to not only survive but also thrive. And the reason why that's so important is because my life is in other people's hands, you know. I mean, the planners or whoever, you know, the policymakers, um, the engineers and so on and so forth, those are the folks that have the the ultimate say over whether. An actual design change gets made or a policy gets put in place, whether I'm protected if I'm making my choice to move in the way I want to.
1: So, we've talked a lot about the city of today. Where do you see cities going in the future?
2: So, you know, we've been living in cities for like 10,000 years. um We've been evolving as modern Homo sapiens for like 250,000 years, right? So if you think of it that way, like we haven't lived in cities for very long and the way that we've done it up until just recently, like just the last hundred years, which is why I say it this isn't a very long time, you know, we've done it in a human scale way. That's pretty normal. Like, you know, mm-hmm. buildings weren't too high because they couldn't be um, to some extent, you know, we traveled with goods by cart and by foot and saw each other in person and so on and so forth. So you know, the way that we're rethinking cities now, once we've come back to the city after the sort of like exodus from it to some extent, has been that it's essentially a product. It's something to be utilized by individuals who are trying to attract talent, who are trying to attract businesses back to downtown. So we have to flip the script and start thinking about cities as a habitat. And that's the future of cities. That's the way I really think of it. You know, it's not about convenience. It's not about like, you know, being able to have your house and a car and a yard and whatever else. It's going to be about what's best for everyone and making some hard choices and design decisions to actually reflect that in an authentic way.
0: So even from when I was first reading about you in articles, you always embraced your identity as a woman in everything that you were doing. You embraced it with your job title and how you talked about cities and how they could change. And I'm curious if you could talk more about how your identity as a woman impacts how you approach your work and where it leads you totally yeah it's it, I, it's not
2: innate to me it's kind of the same way that i went to cities you know after being in rural areas it's not i don't think it's something you think about every day and it took me a really long time to realize it too honestly um and uh, i mean a lot of that was the election just go out and say that that's for sure um but you know, a lot of it was also like experiencing the workplace and then certain movements that came out like Hollaback and then eventually, of course, Me Too and so forth. These things all relate to a woman's experience in the city, in these public spaces. And I guess for me, as an academic and as an anthropologist, I kind of had this worldview of thinking about human beings as human beings. I'm like, hey, we're all human. Like, it's cool. Whatever you want to do is cool. Um, but you know, we all have this ability to get things done and get somewhere in in the world. And I don't know. I mean, I'm also white. I forgot to say that. Um, that also adds another layer of privilege in that sense. But like, as a woman, I think I recognized finally that I was being treated differently, despite the fact that I had this worldview. Um, that to me was huge because I have been educated by men, you know, I've been, Um, you know, all of my reading lists are are noteworthy male urbanists. There still seems to be a lack of women in that space. Um, And being the researcher that I am, I decided to count them. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Which, you know, just just for the record, because I was like, am I crazy? No. (laughs) Um, And it definitely is the case that about 20 percent of women own some sort of urbanist space, whatever that might be, whether it's you know, through literature and talks and and noteworthiness and so on and so forth, um, including Jane Jacobs. um, And the rest of it still seems to be incredibly male dominated and very white cis male dominated. And and at this point, a little bit on the older side as well. So not to say, you know, there's a lot of different levels of diversity that we need to be considering. Mm -hmm. um, But at the very least, women are clearly not represented in our cities, despite the fact that we're 51 percent of the population. So,
0: I mean, it's a policy conversation, it's a design conversation. Yeah, it is so interesting how close this conversation of the built environment and who is doing what and why they are and how they come into that position does border a conversation about politics. Um, And as an anthropologist looking back in time,
2: you know, I kind of also had to wonder, have women ever been in charge of our cities? And it doesn't seem like we have. uh, Honestly, it seems like the earliest cities were a bit more egalitarian. Um, but they were quite small. They were more like like sort of communes in that sense, like a co-housing sort of situation um, with, like, more people. But, uh, you know, somehow something happened, a couple different theories, and suddenly men become in charge of cities, women become uh, a sort of property, uh, and it just goes from there for thousands of years. And that's that's the situation we're in. We're finally coming back around In some capacity where we understand, again, that like ideal egalitarian um, nature of human beings as a single species, and women have the ability to do things now, um, then they're starting. But, you know, we don't know what a women led city would look like because we've never had the ability to experience it before. I think it comes down to diversity of ideas and input and control. And that needs to reflect the diversity of the people that are on the receiving end, right? And I think that you can't deny that in that way. That kind of radical equity is only better for everyone, is what it really comes down to, Um, you know, an isolated like sequence, whatever that is, a system, or a sequence of events, or control structure is never going to be good for everyone. It's just in isolation. I think as an anthropologist, like this is is definitely something people bring up. I think all of this has to do with bias. Um, And as a human being, and as a researcher, you can't separate yourself from bias in that sense. You know, you can try, but it actually works even better if you acknowledge the bias that you have, whether explicit or implicit and you say, okay, I'm doing this research, but I am doing this research as a woman, or I'm doing this work and this planning and this design, but I am doing it as a woman. And my perspective on that is absolutely going to have an impact on that. As long as I can recognize my perspective and experiences um, and either declare those or do my best to separate it, depending on the research that's being done, um, then we can be ethical. as as an anthropologist in that sense. And sometimes understanding where you're coming from and your perspective is a strength to the research that you have. You know, if I'm doing the research in a public space as opposed to a male counterpart, maybe I'm noticing things that are different. You know, I I certainly probably am because of my experiences. Um, And that's what it comes down to in an urban environment. You know, you might not be explicit in your bias. If you are, you know, a white, older, straight man or something like that, you know, you may not purposefully be trying to exclude somebody. You might, but you might not. And if you're not, then, you know, that implicit bias from your experience might be basically, you know, altering whatever it is that you're doing to preference yourself or the people that you see and you recognize as being similar to yourself.
1: That idea of bias is not like a negative thing, but just something that you have to acknowledge and work with. And once you do, it, it can be a benefit as you seek a diverse team and a diverse group of kind of stakeholders and people who have power.
0: I do find it so interesting because I was researching like how to build better teams and team working in a, in a work environment. And it's statistically proven that with a greater diverse team that you will have better outcomes. But what's hard about that is because at first you have to take a hit um, in the sense that it's a lot easier to hire a lot of people that came from the same exact school who have the same exact identity because right away they know how to work together. But if you are willing to take that hit of having a bunch of different people come together and then over time as they learn to work together and figure things out, you will acquire better results um and i that came into fruition through this really good example that was brought up of this idea of how different people use ketchup
1: (laughs) it's all in the ketchup it's
0: all it all comes back to ketchup and it's so strange because how it's described right so people a lot of people in america keep ketchup in their fridge right is that where you oh yeah yeah so it's strange because i don't live in europe are are
1: there other places you keep ketchup
0: right so a lot of people in europe and my family keep ketchup in a like a pantry so mine was always warm which is strange and everyone thought it was weird when i was growing up and i was like i didn't know there was that people kept it cold but it isn't something that's necessary in either direction. But if you think about it, if you, if I were to ask you, like if you ran out of ketchup, like, oh, what else can I have? You would refer to other things that you know are in the fridge Yeah. that would be sitting next to ketchup, yeah, where yeah. someone in t- most European countries or someone from my family would refer to other things that they normally keep in like a pantry mm-hmm. in warm settings. So if you think about it, it's like the same question and neither person is wrong, but they're gonna come up with totally different answers just because of their life experiences. And it doesn't mean that one person is smarter than the other or has a better education than the other person. It's just strictly like how they've grown up
1: yeah it's it's uh it's an assumption that they make not in a bad way but just a bias that they have about yeah. ketchup yeah because of where they come from
0: yeah and it's totally just culturally driven or tromply family driven <laughs> <laughs> so, like, and there's no other proof aside from just like having people from different areas come together inevitably provides different answers to questions
2: You know, so it's it's like um, it is like driving, like to driving, for example, in a normal city, um, the average driver who's driving alone is going to be a white male. And this isn't across the board, of course, but they tend to be driving alone more often. And so if you think of it that way, you have to wonder, okay, well, if they are also the face of the planners that are in charge of those streets and they're driving alone and they're doing their thing. are they thinking about me? Are they thinking about a young black woman? Are they thinking about, you know, uh, a Hispanic mother with three kids? Do you know what I mean? You know, how are they looking at the street in a way that preferences their mode of transportation and understanding of the world because they don't have that diversity around them to make them think otherwise? They're not a teenage boy skateboarding to school. You know, they're not a delivery driver who's trying to get around, by an e-bike and do as many deliveries as he can to live in a city. You know, they're not um, a mom with three kids and a stroller trying to get from the children's hospital to the the other checkup to whatever have you. Um, And they're not, you know, uh, a childless, single, you know, 30-something female who is going to school or you know, a young professional or whatever. You know, it's just there's so many different layers. They're also not an elderly individual in a you know, wheelchair with a walker, right? You know, there's just so many experiences that don't get captured by the people who are representing us as it stands today.
1: So for people who aren't urban anthropologists and professional people watchers, what are some, some ways you can suggest to kind of bring these principles of a more diverse and inclusive city into your kind of day-to-day life?
2: I mean, a lot of it comes down to, um, obviously, representation for the purposes of aspiration, I think. You know, if you can see yourself in something, it's the same as the political conversation. You know, now that that a young woman wearing a hijab can see that that is going to be a viable position in politics, maybe she's going to run for office, right? And... That's like a simple answer and it's and probably too simple of a solution because you have to get people in that position to start with. Um, but that's where I also think that the allyship angle also comes into play in cities, too. You know, it's like if you're in charge of a conference and you're coming up with a speaker list, put a greater diversity of people on that panel, you know, bring in a keynote speaker that isn't one of those, no offense to those guys who <laughs> have come up with right. seminal ideas and urbanism, but, you know, bring someone else uh to the table who doesn't always have that opportunity make that conscious choice or let's say you're on like a stakeholder you know meeting on, on a panel or whatever for some sort of design project, um, you know, make sure that you're making that stakeholder group a diverse group of people from the neighborhood, you know, even if it's not necessarily representative of, say, the demographics by percentage, but bring them in because they're going to add, again, that greater level of diversity. So that some of that means that you have to consciously be thinking about it as a person who has a position of power, which is a heavy lift. I mean, you have to, you know, sort of open your eyes to that. Um, But I think that, once again, it's one of those things where it's, like, once you open your eyes to that, it's really hard to unsee it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for the better, you know? And it's the same with, like, walking around in public spaces or something like that. You, like, walk through a space and you're like, uh, this this isn't comfortable or this doesn't seem right. Like, who, who designed this, you know?
0: I agree. I think that this idea of recognizing your bias in the sense of how you take up space brings about, like, just... A responsibility for how your identity affects other identities in an in a built environment and that doesn't have to be negative but if you recognize your identity and the privilege that might come along with it then you can see how your just everyday existence might affect other people. And that doesn't, like I said, need to be bad, but it could just be something that better informs you on how you take up space moving forward.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think other people are now, like, once again, not to use a term like normal people, but,
0: <laughs> you know, non-urbanist
2: specialists, you know, constantly thinking obsessive people are Starting to get to a point now where they are thinking about it. Once again, as designers of cities in any way, shape, or form, whether that's like on a project-to-project basis or at the level of city government, we have a responsibility, and I think that we need to be talking more about that. Um, because again, you acknowledge that responsibility and don't shy away from that. Just step up, you know, take it more seriously. Really take a hard look at what you're doing to impact other people, because that is what you're doing it for. You know, cities are built by us. A city is a community. We have designed everything from the top down, and that has changed so many times over the eons, right? But we're here now. We can impact what we have now. How can we make that better for everyone in the most ethical and humane way possible?
1: I really enjoy that our whole conversation, and Katrina, all your work is rooted in kind of a deep optimism about the future of cities and the future of humans It reminds me a lot of that super famous Martin Luther King quote that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice.
2: I think that as long as we can get to a point where we have this humanist city ideal and work towards it, that we can create a truly human-centered city of the future. And I think... You know, if we did that sooner than later, we would also stem off a lot of climate change, right? And other things. I mean, it would end up with lower crime rates because you're treating people with dignity and respect. I think love is something that we need to mature into Mm -hmm. as a species and accept wholeheartedly for the future of our
0: species. That's my
2: stump speech.
0: (laughs) I think that it also inspires this idea of instead of it just being the architect designing something and they need to be more active about it it's like that's true but then also as somebody in that space becoming also actively aware of their effect on it and and the two kind of meeting somewhere in the middle with an intention to better the city as a whole yeah, but but also
2: it shouldn't necessarily be their responsibility, too, right, to some right, extent, right. right? It's like yeah. their responsibility to society is like they're a lawyer or a teacher or any number of other jobs that, like, keep a city going. And yeah. so sometimes you have to think and design for someone else so right. that they don't have to.
0: Yeah, and I think that's where what you were saying about the representation comes into play a lot so that people can kind of see that being done yeah no, it's true. it's it's moving a needle.
2: If we can start talking about something um, in an advocacy context, then hopefully someone else also talks about it and then someone else also talks about it. And that's how you get culture change. The younger generations now I sound really old again, the yeah like the incoming generations beyond millennials um are incredibly diverse uh, by default, just because of birth rates and everything else in this country in particular, and their experiences are completely different. And I think that they, having that kind of more humane and progressive experience, it really is true that this country is majority progressive. Just because our politics doesn't represent it, you know, it's it doesn't make it less true. We We are the future in that sense, and it will be a more humane one. I believe that, truly. Either that or we'll destroy ourselves and then the world will go back to being normal. (laughs) Well, hopefully the former. So that's on a sad note at the end there. Sorry.
0: (laughs) And scene. I was going to be like, Ed, full circle. This is like, this has been really great and I feel like an awesome contribution to the to our podcast and like the needle that we're trying to move so thank you again for being a part of it this is like
2: no this is really great i'm glad that you started this
0: what builds us is brought to you by losing your sock in the dryer the dryer has to feed itself somehow and without its steady diet of one of your socks it couldn't go on stop being so selfish and after all what fun would socks be if you had two of
1: them want to send us your thoughts or share your gripe with the city shoot us an email at info.coalesdesign at gmail.com find us on instagram where you can give us a follow or shoot us a message at coalesce.design you can also check out a blog post for this week's episode with readings and more pictures of everything we talk about at coalescedesign.org
0: what builds us is written and produced by us Chantel trombley and brian sanford Mixing and editing is by me, and mastering and music is by our friend Will Gooding. You can find more of his music at www.thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. And thanks again to Katrina for Skyping in with us from Philly. It was awesome to be able to get your input on this podcast.
1: And check in next week for our conversation with our good friend, Professor John Ellis. See you next week.
0: Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs)
1: it truly gets i'm sure you have it way worse than me but it gets gets so so stuck stuck. in my head